right, in 1 Samuel 13 and 14, we find a, a, a contrast of two major characters. It's not always easy to do the right thing. And often it takes initiative and courage that is founded upon our faith in God to do what God wants us to do. So tonight we're going to study a contrast between a man who chose to do the right thing, even if he was alone or risked his life, while the other man tried to find ways to protect himself from defeat and judgment and demonstrated his fear and lack of faith in God. God wants us to live by faith in him and act in courage upon what we know to be right. We see this in Jonathan's trust in 1 Samuel 13 and 14 and his courage, his trust in God and the way he acted in courage as compared to his father, Saul, who acted out of fear and a lack of faith. 1 Samuel 13 through 14, we're going to find three occasions that demonstrate Jonathan's faith and courage in contrast to that of his father, King Saul. The first occasion is going to be in Jonathan's taking the initiative to attack the enemies and the faith that God would give him the victory in doing God's will. And the second occasion we'll look at is where Jonathan trusted the Lord to provide for his physical hunger, whereas Saul, out of fear, made a foolish vow, a, fo a foolish curse. Now, the third occasion, we'll see that Jonathan uh, bravely admitted uh, to his actions and was willing to face the consequences where Saul wanted to put all the blame for the consequences of his actions on his son, Jonathan. So let's look at the first occasion, and this begins in 1 Samuel 13, chapter 1. Oh, and, I, and uh, along with Jonathan's initiative and courage in this passage, we're going to find the contrast of Saul disobeying God and really doing everything to protect himself rather than acting in faith and courage. First, let's look at the first five verses of 1 Samuel 13, where we find Jonathan striking the first military blow against the enemy, the Philistines. Saul reigned one year, and when he reigned two years over Israel, Saul chose him 3,000 men of Israel, whereof 2,000 were with Saul in Michmash, and in Mount Bethel. And a thousand were with Jonathan and Gibeah of Benjamin. And the rest of the people he sent every man to his tent. And Jonathan smote the garrison of the Philistines that was in Gibeah. And the Philistines heard of it. And Saul blew the trumpet throughout all the land, saying, Let the Hebrews hear. And all Israel heard say that Saul had smitten a garrison of the Philistines, and that Israel also was had an abomination with the Philistines. And the people were gathered together 
after Saul, to Gilgal. And the Philistines gathered themselves together to fight with Israel, 30,000 chariots and 6,000 horsemen, and people as the, the sand which, are, which is on the seashore in multitude. And they came up and pitched in Michmash, eastward from Beth Haven. So we see the enemy gathering in epic proportions here to fight against Israel because Jonathan has attacked them. And he's, he's won a victory. He's defeated a garrison of the Philistines. And Saul actually gets the credit for that victory from Jonathan. You know, when, when Saul sounds the trumpet and says, let the Hebrews hear, what do the Hebrews hear? In verse 4, they hear that Saul has defeated a garrison of the Philistines. But in verse three, we found it was Jonathan who did so. And if you look at verse two, you see 2,000 men were with Saul and 1,000 were with Jonathan. Yet Jonathan's the one who takes the initiative and, and makes the first move and strikes. Um, it doesn't seem that Saul had given any orders to that effect. We don't know that for sure. Uh, but it seems like Jonathan has taken the initiative here. You're going to see in the beginning of chapter 14 that Jonathan definitely takes the initiative without being told by Saul. Here it could be that he was acting under the orders of Saul, but it's not clear. But yet we do see nonetheless that Jonathan is courageous, he takes initiative, and he's trusting in God to give him the victory, and wins a victory here in the opening verses of chapter 13. Now it does provoke the Philistines further to come to battle against the Hebrews. But now let's look at the contrast in the following verses, 6 through 16, of Saul's reaction to the Philistines gathering against him. You see that Saul does not obey God in the following verses. Verse 6, when the men of Israel saw that they were in a strait, for the people were distressed, when the then the people did hide themselves in caves and in thickets and in rocks and in high places and in pits. And some of the Hebrews went over Jordan to the land of Gad and Gilead. So you see a lot of Israelites just flee for their lives and go into hiding. We're going to find them coming out of hiding later as a result of the faith and courage of Jonathan. And verse 7 continued. As for Saul, he was yet in Gilgal, and all the people followed him trembling. So they are very afraid. Verse 8, And he tarried seven days according to the set time that Samuel had appointed. But Samuel came not to Gilgal, and the people were scattered from him. And Saul said, Bring hither a burnt offering to me, and peace offerings. And he offered the burnt offering. And it came to pass that as soon as he had made an end of offering, the burnt offering, behold, Samuel came, and Saul went out to meet him, that he might salute him. And Samuel said, What hast thou done? And Saul said, Because I saw that the people were scattered, scattered from me, that thou camest not within the days appointed, and that the Philistines gathered themselves together at Michmash. Therefore said I, The Philistines will come down. Now upon me to Gilgal, and I have not made supplication unto the Lord. I forced myself, therefore, and offered a burnt offering. And Samuel said to Saul, Thou hast done foolishly. 
Thou hast not kept the commandment of the Lord thy God, which he commanded thee. For now would the Lord have established thy kingdom upon Israel forever. But now thy kingdom shall not continue. The Lord hath sought him a man after his own heart. And the Lord hath commanded him to be captain over his people, because thou hast not kept that which the Lord commanded thee. And Samuel arose and gat him from Gilgal into Gibeah of Benjamin. And Saul numbered the people that were present with him, about six hundred men. Notice that's, that number has fallen off quite a bit since verse 1, where he had 2,000 men. Now he has 600 which is why he felt desperate. And yet, no matter what the circumstances, we're supposed to trust God and do what God wants. We're supposed to do his will. We're supposed to do what is right, despite these circumstances. But Saul doesn't have the courage. He doesn't have the faith to follow through and obey God's command. So he offers the offering. And just as he's done offering that sacrifice in disobedience to God, rather than waiting for Samuel, who would be the rightful person as the Levite to come and offer that sacrifice, not the Benjaminite, Saul, who is a king. And we see a distinction in the Bible, in the Old Testament, between the office of a king and the office of a priest, with a notable exception being that of Melchizedek, going back to the time of Abraham. And Jesus is going to be like that, in that he is both king and priest. And that's reserved for him. He's going to be a, um, a priest after the order and a king after the order of Melchizedek. But that was not allowed for the Israelite kings. None of them are allowed to perform that office of priest. In fact, later on in the books of Kings, Second uh, Kings, we find that King Uzziah, he violates that office by going into the temple to offer incense to God, and he's struck with leprosy. And after that, um, it's very clear uh, that no king is to intrude into the office of a priest. That's reserved for the Levites and the priests uh, and descendants of Aaron. So Saul intruded that and violated God's commandment. That's seen very clearly in verse 13, where Samuel testifies that thou, to Saul, thou hast not kept the commandment of the Lord thy God which he commanded thee, for now the Lord would have established thy kingdom upon Israel forever. So Saul lost a tremendous opportunity to be that king that would have that perpetual line of kings in Israel. That would now be given to David, and the Messiah, Jesus himself, would be born in that line of kings and would be the ultimate fulfillment of the, the covenant that God would make with David of an everlasting uh, kingdom. But that is not for Saul now, because he's disobeyed God. He's lost that privilege of being, having that line of kings that descend from him. When he commits his second sin at Gilgal, a couple chapters later, he's actually going to receive further judgment, even more than this. This is his first great act of disobedience. And it stands in contrast to the Saul that we've seen in earlier chapters, where he had been humble, where he had been trusting God, where he had been acting out of the walking with the Spirit, the power of God's Holy Spirit. We saw that with the great victory 
last week when we looked at chapters 11 and 12. And now we see a great contrast between the Saul of those chapters who followed God and now the Saul who went, went his own way and out of fear does not do what is right. Instead, goes his own way, trying to protect himself, trying to, out of fear, find his own way to, per, to deliver himself, which means that he's not trusting in God to keep him safe. He's not trusting in God to give him a victory. He sees the situation as hopeless and is fearful. And to see this continue throughout the next couple of, throughout the rest of this passage, this chapter, and the next. But there's a contrast with Jonathan. Now, although Saul would not wait here for Samuel, you see when Samuel leaves, he does wait. He does not take the initiative to attack. He's, he's fearful. He's basically in hiding like many other Israelites who have scattered from him. In contrast to what we saw in the last couple chapters where all of the Israelites gathered around his leadership. And he had that wise military leadership dividing his, his band into three groups and defeating the enemy. Now facing the Philistines, he seems to not have that same confidence. He does not, he's not trusting God the way that he did in the previous chapters. Let's continue with verse... 15. And Samuel arose and, set, and gat him up from Gilgal unto Gibeah of Benjamin. And Saul numbered the people that were present with him about 600. And Saul and Jonathan his son and the people that were present with him abode in Gibeah of Benjamin. But the Philistines encamped in Michmash. And the spoilers came out of the camp of the Philistines in three companies. One company turned unto the way that leadeth to Oprah, unto the land of Shual. And another company turned the way to Beth Horon. And another company turned its way to the border that looked to the valley of Zeboam toward the wilderness. Now there was no smith found in all the land of Israel. For the Philistines said, lest the Hebrews make them swords or spears. But all the Israelites went down to the Philistines to sharpen every man his share in his coulter in his axe and his mattock yet they had a file for mattocks and for coulters and for forks and for the axes and to sharpen the goads so it came to pass in the day of battle that there was neither sword nor spear found in the hand of any of the people that were with Saul and Jonathan but with Saul and with Jonathan his son was there found and the garrison of the Philistines went out to the passage of Michmash. In other words, Saul and Jonathan are the only one with proper weapons. Saul's army is woefully unprepared to meet the Philistines in battle because none of them have actual weapons of war. All they have are farming instruments, and, they, and for the most part, they can't even sharpen, they can't even maintain those instruments without going to the Philistines to do so. So they're not armed. They're very disarmed, except for Saul all and except for Jonathan each of them has a sword so each of them are armed and Jonathan as we see in chapter 14 now has an armor bearer so Saul's armor we see at the end of chapter 13 is woefully unprepared for battle Jonathan we're going to see in the first verses of 
chapter 14, is going to take the initiative and act upon his faith in God in attacking the Philistines. The Philistines, as we saw, had numbers as described as the sand of the sea. They are now looting and spoiling the land, and they have garrisons. And Jonathan's going to attack their garrison. He's going to attack their fortress in the rocks. Let's look at chapter 14 now. Now it came to pass upon a day that Jonathan the son of Saul said unto the young man that bare his armor, Come and let us go over to the Philistines' garrison that is on the other side. But he told not his father. And Saul tarried in the uttermost part of Gibeah under a pomegranate tree, which is in Migron. And the people that were with him were about 600 men. And Ahiah, the son of Ahitub, Ichabod's brother, the son of Phinehas. Remember Ichabod? We looked at that back when uh, Hophni, or Hophni and Phinehas died in battle when the Ark of the Covenant was captured by the Philistines in that great loss of Israel to the Philistines back in a previous chapter in 1 Samuel. When word came back, remember, to Eli, he fell back and died when he heard that the Ark of the Covenant was taken. But also at that time it mentioned, it mentioned the wife of Phinehas who gave birth to Ichabod and died as she gave birth and called him Ichabod, meaning the glory had departed. Well, Ichabod's brother, the son of Phinehas, apparently his older brother, the son of Eli, so this is the grandson of Eli, the Lord's priest in Shiloh, wearing an ephod, and the people knew not that Jonathan was gone. And between the passages by which Jonathan sought to go over into the Philistines' garrison, there was a sharp rock on the one side and a sharp rock on the other side. And the name of one was Bozes, and the name of the other, Sina. And the forefront of the one was situated northwest over against Michmash, and the other southward over against Gibeah. And Jonathan said to the young man that bare his armor, Come, and let us go over into the garrison of these uncircumcised. It may be that the Lord will work for us, for there is no restraint to the Lord to save by many or few. So unlike his father, who is waiting to see you know, what will happen, to see if more people will show up, whatever he's waiting for, maybe waiting to play you know, a defensive role in battle against the Philistines, or just hold the ground where he is, or fall back, I'm not sure if he has a plan at all. He's waiting back in, in, in Gibeah, under, sitting under the pomegranate tree, so in his own part of the country, in, ben, in the tribe of Benjamin, whereas Jonathan decides to go on the offensive. And he takes, apparently, just one man with him, his armor bearer. And they go up through the passages between the rocks up to a Philistine the garrisons to attack it. So Jonathan's going to take initiative. He's going to act upon his faith. Notice his faith is testified here by his statement that God can deliver whether by many or by few. So that's a testimony here to his faith. And God's going to reward that in this passage. He's going to reward Jonathan's faith and the initiative, the courage he shows acting upon that faith. Notice also that his armor bearer, that Jonathan's faith and his courage, you know, those are things that are contagious that uh, the armor bearer trusts his master, Jonathan. And verse 7, 
And his armor bearer said unto him, Do all that is in thine heart. Turn thee, behold, I am with thee according to thy heart. Then said Jonathan, Behold, we will pass over unto these men, and we will discover ourselves unto them. And now what we see here is that Jonathan knows that the general will of God is that Israel defeat the Philistines. You know, we, we know the general will of God for our lives of what we should do, not do, and how God wants us to win souls, and God wants us to be a testimony for him. And then sometimes the specific decisions in life. How do we go about that? Where do we um, witness to someone? Where do we share the gospel? How do we go about it? That would be the specific details of fulfilling God's general will. Here, Jonathan knows the general will of God is to go and defeat the enemy, defeat the Philistines. And now he's going to discern, based on these circumstances that he's going to set up, a little test, kind of like Gideon sets up his test with the, the fleece and in the book of Judges, and we see other places where a test is set up. If God does, if this happens, then that's God's will. So he's setting up a, a test for God. Where he's looking for God's direction here, where he is going to discern what God's specific will, and then he's going to do it. He is acting out of courage, acting out of faith, that God wants him to work a victory here against the enemy. So look at verse 9. If they say thus unto us, tarry until we come to you, then we will stand still in our place and will not go up unto them. But if they say thus, come up unto us, then we will go up. For the Lord hath delivered them into our hand, and this shall be a sign unto us. And both of them discover themselves unto the garrison of the Philistines. And the Philistines said, Behold, the Hebrews come forth out of the holes where they have hid themselves. And the men of the garrison answered Jonathan and his armor bearer and said, Come up to us, and we will show you a thing. So you can kind of see the arrogance. They're thinking, you know, what can these two guys, what can these two Hebrews have been hiding from us? What can they do against us? And Jonathan said unto his armor bearer, Come up after me. For the Lord hath delivered them into his hand of Israel. And you see a contrast here. Jonathan believes God's going to give him the victory because he has set up this test for God. He's looking for God's direction. And he believes God has answered in this way by the Philistines inviting him to come up. They're going to basically, uh, they're going to teach him a lesson by beating him in battle when he comes up to fight against them. So Jonathan goes up, and we see that God rewards his faith and his courage. Let's look at the following verses. Uh, verse 13. And Jonathan climbed up upon his hands and upon his feet. Speaking of the climb up, the, up these rocks to the, this fortress, this uh, checkpoint here of the Philistines, and his armor bearer after him. And they fell before Jonathan and his armor bearer and and his armor bearer slew after him. So the idea is here that Jonathan goes up and attacks. He falls upon the Philistines with his sword. And the armor bearer comes with his dagger um, behind him. Sometimes the armor bearer might be carrying some kind of shield or armor for Jonathan. But what their, their, job, their primary role in battle was to have their master's back. And any person that falls... You know, in a hand-to-hand -hand, hand -hand combat, they'd often be just wounded. 
So his job is to come behind Jonathan and finish each person that's falling to the ground off so that they're not getting up behind them and attacking them from behind or anything like that. So that's what he's doing. He's slaying behind Jonathan as Jonathan uh, strikes out and is able to hit one to the ground. The armor bearer finishes him off and they continue to, to make this progress and the Philistines are falling before them. And as this is happening, because it's just two guys, as we're going to see in the following verses, the Philistines are taken off guard. I mean, it's just a, apparently a few guards that say, yeah, come up, we'll show you something. And they come up and they start beating them. And a lot of the other garrison and the Philistines in the surrounding area, they don't know what's happening. They just know that there's Philistines being killed. And so they, they and remember, back then soldiers didn't necessarily wear uniforms that distinguished themselves. They're, they're from, from one another. And some of the Israelites, as we're going to see in the following verses, were actually with the Philistines to fight on their side. So the assumption by the Philistines is they're turning against us and they start uh, fighting against themselves and fleeing in the opposite direction and trampling over one another, trying to get out of the way of this attack that they assume is more than just two men. They don't realize it's just Jonathan and his armor bearer that have started this attack, as we're going to see in the following verses. Verse 14. And that first slaughter which Jonathan and his armor bearer made was about 20 men within, as it were, a half acre of land which a yoke of oxen might plow. And there was a trembling in the host and in the field among all the people. And some, some commentators think that this trembling here is actually God sending an earthquake. And that, that further disrupts the Philistines and puts them on edge. You know, when, when, a hur when, when, when the ground shakes beneath you, you know, that, that gives you a lack of confidence. So when, when there's, a, there's an earthquake and then people are being killed around you and you're not sure exactly what's going on, it puts the Philistines on edge. It puts them in fear and causes uh, chaos. Look at verse 15 again. And the spoilers, they also trembled and the earth quaked. It was a very great trembling. And so the idea is they're, they're quaking, they're trembling, and perhaps there's an earthquake, perhaps there's just so many people that are shaking out of fear that the ground shakes. Perhaps there's actually an earthquake. But look at verse 16. And the watchmen of Saul and Gibeah of Benjamin looked, and behold, the multitude melted away, and they went on beating down one another. So here's where you see there's chaos, they're fighting amongst each other now, beating one another down. And then said Saul unto the people that were with him, Number now and see who is gone from us. And when they had numbered, behold, Jonathan and his armor bearer were not there. And Saul said unto Ahiah, Bring hither the ark of God, for the ark of God was at that time with the children of Israel. And I think it's interesting how they had not consulted God yet, whereas Jonathan, he took the initiative to attack, but Saul, he's just waiting. He's just waiting. He, he, he had di already disobeyed God by offering that sacrifice that he wasn't supposed to, and then he just sat around and waited while his force had been depleted, gone down from 2,000 to 600, or perhaps 3,000 to 600, since it seems like the forces of Jonathan and, and uh, Saul reunited, and then so many people had left. But Saul is just waiting. And now there's, a, there's an attack going on 
against the Philistines and they're melting away and it becomes obvious that someone's attacking the Philistines but, John, but Saul doesn't know what's happening or who is, who is attacking the Philistines. Now, verse 19, so he decides to seek God's direction here or is about to seek God's direction. It looks like they don't actually follow through with that. Verse 19, and it came to pass while Saul talked unto the priest that the noise that was of the, in the host of the Philistines went on and increased. And Saul said unto the priest, withdraw thine hand. So basically the priest is, is asking direction of God and, and, and Saul says, okay, stop, stop. Uh, I've got it. We've got it from here. We're just going to uh, do something. You know, so he's, he's not, notice the impatience of Saul. He's not trusting in God. He's not waiting on God. He's, he's leaning on his own understanding. Um, you saw that in chapter 13 where he doesn't wait for Samuel. And then you see it here where he doesn't even wait for the priest to finish consulting God and says, withdraw thine hand. Verse 20, And Saul and all the people that were with him assembled themselves, and they came up to battle. And behold, every man's sword was against his fellow, and there was a very great discomfiture. So the Hebrews march up to the scene. They, they, Saul feels it's so urgent. Okay, we just have to go now. All right, we were starting to consult God, but we, we don't have time for that. Let's just go. Let's go to the battle before we miss out on the action. So they come to the battle scene, and they find the Philistines Beating, uh, beating themselves down, cutting themselves down, and in retreat, in a state of chaos. And so the Hebrews, and let's look at, let's look at verse 21. Moreover, the Hebrews that were with the Philistines before that time, so there had been Hebrews fighting with the Philistines against their own countrymen, apparently, or serving them, working for them, which went up with them unto the camp from the country and round about. Even they also turned to be with the Israelites, so these are people you really couldn't trust. They're just going to fight on whoever side they think is going to win. They, if they think the Philistines are going to win, they're going to serve them and fight against their own countrymen. If they think the Hebrews have the upper hand, well, then they're going to fight against the Philistines. So that's what they're doing now. They're, they're turning on the Philistines, their Philistine masters, and fighting against them because they believe, okay, now we can actually, uh, Hebrews actually might be winning. And they turned to be with the Israelites and were with Saul and Jonathan. Likewise, all the men of Israel. So apparently Jonathan this whole time is continuing to fight and continuing to kill more and more Philistines. Likewise, all the men of Israel had hid themselves, which had hid themselves in the Mount Ephraim. Remember it mentioned them leaving the scene and going into the holes and rocks and hiding everywhere and getting, leaving, even leaving the country to get out of the path of the invading Philistine army. Now a lot of them come back and come back to join the fight and defeat the Philistines. Likewise, verse 22, likewise all the men of Israel which had hid themselves in Mount Ephraim when they heard the Philistines fled, even they also followed hard after them in the battle. So you notice the importance of leadership here, that with the proper leadership, with Jonathan taking initiative and doing God's will out of courage, that the people gather around him. They rally around him and uh, participate in this great victory that God provided. You know, Jonathan took the initiative, but it's ultimately God that gives him this victory. In verse 23, so the Lord, and here you have it very clearly stated, so the Lord saved Israel that day, and the battle passed over unto Beth Haven. So this is the first event here in, in these passages where Jonathan showed his courage and faith in God. He trusted God to give him 
victory in battle. We saw that with his first attack of a garrison at the beginning of chapter 13. We see the contrast of Saul not being able to wait. First, he couldn't wait to offer the sacrifice before, John, uh, before Samuel showed up. And then he couldn't, he, he couldn't go into battle until Jonathan started the battle and started winning a victory. And then he couldn't wait on the priest to finish consulting God because the battle was raging and he felt pressed to enter the battle. Whereas Jonathan, he took the initiative to attack the Philistines first and, and, and chapter 13 really provoked them to come upon, against the Hebrews. But he believed now that they're come, you know, he, he believed that he had done the right thing at attacking them in the first place. They're, they're the enemies of Israel. They're uh, enemies of God in that sense since they're enemies of Israel. And he believes it's God's will to defeat them. So in chapter 14, he again attacks them. And he knows it's God's general will to defeat the Philistines. So he doesn't know, well, should I attack this particular group? Should I go up and attack them? Or should I wait for them to come and attack me? Should I go on defense, offense? And so he looks for God's specific leading and direction through the circumstances and through this um, trial that he tests that he sets up, kind of like Gideon did and, and judges with his fleece situation, but uh, he sets up this test. He believes that the answer is from the Lord, and he trusts in the Lord. When the answer comes, he follows it in the way that he committed to, which was to go up and attack. He doesn't change his mind at that point. He, he follows in his commitment to attack the Philistines, and his, his armor bearer follows him. His faith and courage is contagious, and his armor bearer is loyal to him. And they get a great victory that comes from God, as we see in verse 23. The Lord saved Israel. It doesn't say Jonathan saved Israel. It says the Lord saved Israel. And you know, the Lord may have even brought an earthquake, this trembling that came upon the Philistines. The Lord helps to discomfort comfort, uh, the Philistines, to, to disrupt them, to throw them into chaos and fear and disorder, and gives Jonathan the faith, the courage, the strength, to keep fighting, and for more and more Israelites to join him, including Saul. And a great victory is won. Yet, there is a limit to that victory because of a foolish decision that Saul makes early on, before the battle even commences. Um, this is similar to the superstition that we saw earlier in the book of 1 Samuel, where the Israelites took the Ark of the Covenant into battle with them. That didn't work. They lost the Ark of the Covenant in that battle. Here, Saul comes up with his own idea, his own religious idea of how to win a victory. And it's not a very wise one, as we see. And Jonathan even gives testimony to that fact. So the contrast in the second occasion, the second occasion is Jonathan is trusting God to provide for his physical needs of hunger. Whereas Saul, out of fear and superstition, forbids anyone to eat anything, and their victory is going to be much less than it otherwise would have been. And the consequences down the road are going to be disastrous for Israel, because instead of wiping um, the Philistines out to the point where they'll never be able to attack them again, they're going to face them in battle again. And ultimately, Jonathan, Saul, several of Saul's other sons, many Israelites, and Saul himself will die in a battle against the Philistines that could have been prevented right here in 1 Samuel 14. And you'll see a contrast here between Jonathan's courage and faith in the Lord 
in Saul's fear and superstition. Let's look at verse 24 and the following verses. And the men of Israel were distressed that day, for Saul had adjured the people, saying, Cursed be the man that eateth any food until the evening, that I may be avenged on mine enemies. And notice how he's focused on himself and is a little bit selfish here. You're going to see that. You saw that earlier, I think, in chapter 13, where Jonathan smote a garrison of the Philistines, and then uh, Saul in the very next verse, in, chap in verse 4 of chapter 13, you know, in the end of verse 3 said, Let the Hebrews hear, and all Israel heard say that Saul had smitten a garrison of the Philistines. And later on, you're going to see David, um, Saul get very jealous of David when people sing, Saul has slain his thousands, but David his ten thousands. So he's, he's, he's apparently a very selfish, prideful, haughty person who had a, a false sense of humility at the beginning where he hid himself among the stuff. But he does want the glory for himself, and he's focused on himself here. So he says, Cursed be the man that eateth any food until the evening, that I may be avenged on mine enemies. Rather than, he's not focused on God here, and God giving a victory, and God avenging himself on God's enemies. He's focused on himself. So none of the people tasted any food. So the idea here that Saul is thinking is, you know, if we don't stop to take a lunch break, We'll be able to do more work and kill more people because we're not stopping to eat. Problem is, at some point, you're, you're burning a lot of calories in hand-to-hand -hand combat and covering all the ground in pursuit of this fleeing army. And so people are going to get hungry. They're going to get weak. They need the nourishment of food. So this turns to be out an unwise plan that Saul has. Verse 25. And all they of the land came to a wood, and there was honey upon the ground. And when the people were come into the wood, behold, the honey dropped. But no man put his hand to his mouth, for the people feared the oath. The oath that Saul had made, that anyone who would eat anything that day would be cursed. Verse 27, But Jonathan heard not when his father charged the people with the oath. Wherefore he put forth the end of the rod that was in his hand and dipped it in the honeycomb and put his hand to his mouth and his eyes were enlightened. Then answered one of the people and said, Thy father straightly charged the people with an oath, saying, Cursed be the man that eateth any food this day. And the people were faint. Then said Jonathan, My father hath troubled the land. See, I pray you, how mine eyes have been enlightened because I tasted a little of this honey. So he's saying, look at the energy that this gives me, just a little bit of honey. And just think if everyone had been allowed to eat. How, and look at the following verse here. Verse 30. How much more, if happily the people had eaten freely today of the spoil of their enemies which they found? For had there not been now a much greater slaughter among the Philistines? And they smote the Philistines that day from Michmash to Hylon, and the people were very faint. So notice that the people had began to become tired earlier, here in verse 26. When the people came into the wood, behold, the honey dropped, but no man put to his hands, for the people feared the oath. And you notice in verse 29, Jonathan says, this is not a good idea, the people are not eating and verse 30, he, he makes further that they could have slaughtered more Philistines. And look at 
Verse 32, the people, they kept fighting. They, they flew up. Uh, they smote the Philistines. Verse 31, that day from Michmash to Hain, the people were very faint. And the people flew upon the spoil and took sheep and oxen and calves and slew them on the ground. And the people did eat them with the blood. So they're, they're not cooking. They're not draining the blood. They're eating raw meat because they're so hungry. They're so famished. In verse 33, and they told Saul, oh, and uh, it could be here that they're not afraid to eat now because for, that, for the Hebrews, the day was over once, when, once it, it becomes dark, it's the next day now. So now the oath is over, it's the next day. Uh, whenever the, you know, once the sun goes down, it's, it's considered the next day and that night is part of the next day. Um, so as soon as they get to that point, they can't wait. They can't wait. They don't bother uh, properly draining the blood, butchering the animals, and cooking the food, but are eating it with the blood, which is a violation of the Mosaic law. They're not to eat the blood. That's the life of the flesh is in the blood, and they're not to eat it. Verse 33, And they told Saul, saying, Behold, the people sin against the Lord, and that they eat with the blood. And he said, Ye have transgressed. Roll a great stone unto me this day. And Saul said, Disperse yourselves among the people, and say unto them, Bring me hither every man his ox, and every man his sheep, and slay them here, and eat, and sin not against the Lord in the eating with the blood. And all the people brought every man his ox with him that night, and slew them there. And Saul built an altar unto the Lord. The same was the first altar that he built unto the Lord. And so, so, so the sin is realized here, that the people have now begun to sin against the Lord because they're so hungry, they're so uh, lacking energy to, to continue on the battle that Jonathan said they could have made a much greater slaughter had they been allowed to eat while they were eat of the spoil and eat of the honey along the way as they were defeating the Philistines. But because they have been prevented from doing though until this point, they're so hungry that they begin to sin against God and violate the Mosaic law of not eating blood, not eating raw meat, or at least meat that has been drained of the blood. So that's the second occasion we find in, this, in these passages of 1 Samuel 13 and 14. The third occasion is now going to be Jonathan bravely facing his wicked father, King Saul, and telling the truth about what he had done. And trusting God to protect him. He doesn't lie. He doesn't try to make excuses or hide behind what he has done. But rather, he's willing to face the consequences of his actions. He's going to uh, tell the truth and face the consequences. Where Saul wants to shift all the blame of anything bad that happened that day onto his son, Jonathan. Starting at verse 36. And Saul said... Let us go down after the Philistines by night and spoil them until the morning light. And let us not leave a man of them. And they said, Do whatsoever seemeth good unto thee. Then said the priest, Let us draw near hither unto God. Remember, the priest had began to ask of God earlier. Now the priest wants to finish asking of God to see whether they should continue pursuing the enemy and you know, make sure that they're not making a mistake and pursuing the enemy too far and end up uh, having the enemy turn back on them and, and begin to defeat them. So they do inquire of the Lord here in verse 37. And Saul asked the counsel of God. 
Shall I go down after the Philistines? Will thou deliver them unto the hand of Israel? But he, that's God, answered him, Saul, not that day. So Saul realizes at this point, something's wrong. God's not answering me. Something's wrong. And rather than examine himself and the way he's acted in the previous chapters and offering that offering when he was not supposed to and then not trusting God for the battle and, and causing the people to sin by forbidding them to eat, putting a curse on anyone who would eat, and then this transgression of the people and eating the blood, rather than look at himself at all and take any responsibility, he looks for someone to blame. Look at verse 38. Saul said, Draw ye near hither, and all the, peop all the chief of the people, and know and see wherein this sin hath been this day. For as the Lord liveth, which saveth Israel, though it be in Jonathan my son, he shall surely die. But there was not a man among all the people that answered him. Then said he unto all Israel, Be ye on one side, and I and Jonathan my son will be on the other side. And the people said unto Saul, Do what seemeth good unto thee. Notice that the people are pretty afraid of Saul. Pretty much anything he wants, they're going to go along with it. You'll see this even further until a certain point. They get to a certain point, and they, then they're pushed too far, and they say, nope, Saul, we're not doing that. Uh, but so far, they pretty much go along with anything he says, and they're pretty much afraid of him. But so they, they said, whatever seemeth good unto thee. Verse 41 now, Therefore Saul said unto the Lord God of Israel, Give a perfect lot. And Saul, so what he does here is basically almost like the flipping of a coin. They take a lot, which is, is it, is the blame for the, is there a sin that's between, that is committed by either Saul and Jonathan or some, someone else of the people? So they take a lot a, that is between the people and Jonathan and Saul. So he takes that lot and Jonathan and Saul are selected by God that the sin is among one of them. Now, what's interesting in the following verse is they do not follow the same procedure from that point. Saul is not going to allow that to happen because who is the sin really with? I believe it's actually with Saul. And Saul is the one is to blame for all this. But Saul does not have the same lot cast between himself and Jonathan. Instead, he turns to the people and says, you vote, you tell me, who's wrong, me or him? And who are they going to single out? Now, look at the following verses, 43. And then Saul said to Jonathan, well, we don't even get that far uh, to the people, but you'll see in the following verses, he does take the case to the people. But Saul says to Jonathan, so Saul doesn't even consider that it could be him that is wrong. He says, Jonathan, what have you done? When the lot comes down to it's him or Jonathan that have sinned, he's not even considering the fact that it could be him that's in sin. He just says, all right, Jonathan, what have you done? Fess up. And so Jonathan admits to what is, is going on here. He's in it. Verse 43. And Saul said to Jonathan, tell me what thou hast done. Oh, yes. Oh, I did skip a verse here, 42. I'm sorry. And Saul said, cast lots between me and Jonathan, my son, and Jonathan was taken. And as I studied this verse out, I found that this lot that is cast here is not the same as what is cast in the previous verses, which is where he asked God for a perfect lot. And that lot was selected him and his son. But actually the lot that's taken in the second place is a vote, 
which is, all right, people, you decide, is it, you, you cast your, the lot here, is it me or is it Jonathan? And the people point to Jonathan, because first of all, they'd be afraid to point at Saul, because that would make Saul angry. And second of all, they knew that Jonathan had violated the curse. So they're assuming, well, it must be Jonathan because Saul said whoever ate anything would be cursed, and he did eat something. So some of them know that. And uh, so Jonathan is taken. And then Saul said to Jonathan, tell me what thou hast done. And Jonathan told him and said, I did put but taste a little honey with the end of the rod, which was in mine hand, and lo, I must die. And Saul answered, God do so more and more also, for thou shalt surely die, Jonathan. Now, I think there's a hint of almost sarcasm here, if that is possible, of Jonathan pointing out the fallacy of Saul's thinking here. Is lo, I ate a little honey, and now I must die. And, and Saul is actually angered by that statement of Jonathan, which perhaps suggests there's some, some, some kind of sarcasm or some kind of uh, pointed message that Jonathan's getting across. So you're saying that I should die because I tasted some honey. In verse 44, you see Saul answered, God do some more and also, for thou shalt surely die, Jonathan. So Saul, you can tell he's angry. He doesn't like the even the even the in, inference, even John, if, John, if Jonathan is even implying that Saul has done something wrong here in, in indicating that Jonathan has caused all this sin or caused God not to answer Saul because of Jonathan's not eating, because of Jonathan's eating the honey. And so you see here the the contrast of this with Jonathan had just done these great, this, achieved this great victory or had a part in it, began it, took that initiative of attacking the enemy, had trusted God, and was and didn't even know about the curse. And yet he has to die. And, and, and Saul says, that's right, you do have to die. Verse 45, and, the, and pe the people said unto Saul, shall Jonathan die? So up until this point, they go along with him completely. And when Saul asked them to decide, okay, is it, after they, they cast that perfect lot and ask God, is it the people or is it Saul and Jonathan? Then he asked the people or cast this lot that apparently the people are involved in. And they say, okay, it's, it's Jonathan. So up to this point, they've been very compliant with Saul. But when it gets to this point, they're not willing to do so any further. And the people said unto Saul, shall Jonathan die? who hath wrought this great salvation in Israel, God forbid. As the Lord liveth, there shall not one hair of his head fall to the ground, for he hath wrought with God, he hath wrought with God this day. So the people rescued Jonathan that day, and he died not. And the, the study on this term rescue, apparently there, and I'm not sure if someone else actually dies in his place, I don't think so, but there is apparently, uh, by rescuing, they're actually paying, they're making, instead of paying a fine to or a ransom to Saul, something is done to satisfy Saul's wrath and sense of justice here, to allow 
Jonathan to be rescued. There's some kind of payment here is what is implied by the term that's used for rescue here, that there's some kind of restitution payment, um, whether it's an offering to God or offering a ransom of some of the spoil given to Saul. Okay, take this and let this be in place of killing your son. And, and so they rescue Jonathan, that he died not. Then Saul went up from following the Philistines, and the Philistines went to their own place. So notice they do not, no, notice they do not continue pursuing the Philistines. That was what they went, what they were asking God about when they, when the priest sought direction and Saul asked direction from the Lord, and God did not answer. They were asking whether they should continue pursuing the Philistines. And because they don't get an answer and all of this, that they don't continue uh, pursuing them. So verse 47, So Saul took the kingdom over Israel and fought against all his enemies on every side, against Moab and against the children of Ammon and against Edom and against the kings of Zobah and against the Philistines. And whithersoever he turned himself, he vexed them. And this is basically the type of king Israel had been looking for when they said, we want a king like all nations around us. And when you look at the reasons they're looking at, they're looking at, we want a military leader to deliver us from our enemies. God provided that king for that purpose. But you also see that despite his military successes, he had a great spiritual failure and a lack of wisdom, as a lack of courage as well, that's displayed here in these two passages. And it's going to come even further into view in the following chapter and, and also his pursuit and, and seeking to kill David. In the next, next chapter we'll look at next week, you're actually going to see that the Spirit of God leaves Saul. And uh, it, interesting enough, I actually taught um, some Bible lessons this week at, at school where we looked at these passages and the question was raised. Uh, in one of the Psalms, after David committed his sin, he asked of God he, he, not to take his spirit from him because he knew what that did to Saul. But we also went further on in, that, in our discussion in class, and if God had removed his Holy Spirit from David, like he did Saul, does that mean he's not saved? And I don't believe it does. I don't believe that all of this indicates that Saul was condemned by the next chapter when we'll look at that next week and it'll be an interesting study in itself next week we'll save that for next week so a little bit of a look ahead a preview for next week something we'll look at the holy spirit leaving saul and saul's second sin but here we see at the end of this passage saul's uh military exploits, victories, and just a general solidification of the kingdom under his rule. In verses 48 to 52, to finish the chapter, and he gathered a host and smote the Amalekites and delivered Israel out of the hands of them that spoiled them. Now the sons of Saul were Jonathan and Ishua and Melchishua, and the names of his daughters were these, the name of his first man Merib, and the name of the younger Michael. And the name of Saul's wife was Ahinoam, the daughter of Ahimeaz. And the name of the captain of his was Abner, the son of Ner, and Saul's uncle. And Kish was the father of Saul, and Ner, the father of Abner, was the son of Abiel. 
And there was a sore war against the Philistines all the days of Saul. And when Saul saw any strong man or any valiant man, he took him unto him. And remember, that was part of the prophecy that Samuel gave from God of what a king would do. They wanted a king to provide military strength. That would be done, but it would be at the expense of their sons who would be taken to battle with him and the great uh, power and authority that he would have over the nation. So in this passage again, we saw one man doing what he believed was right, what God wanted him to do, taking that initiative and courage in three occasions, first to attack and defeat the enemy and discern God's specific will in that situation, in that occasion. Second, to trust God for his physical need of hunger, where in contrast, Saul did not trust God to attack. He didn't wait for Saul to come, Samuel to come offer the burnt offering. And he, then he waited to attack, let Jonathan take the initiative. And then he didn't wait for the priest to even finish consulting God before he joined in the battle. And then on the third occasion, we saw Jonathan bravely face the consequence of his actions, even though he had really done nothing wrong except to violate the foolish curse that Saul, his father, had placed without his knowledge upon anyone who would eat. And so Saul, instead of trusting God to provide for the physical need of hunger, you know, he had that superstition that if we don't eat, then we'll have more time to defeat the enemies. It doesn't end up being the case. And in the end, when Saul doesn't have an answer from God of whether to pursue the enemy, he doesn't pursue them, but rather blames Jonathan for God not answering Saul. And so we see a, a, a major contrast between those two characters, one who trusted God and did what he believed God wanted him to do, and one who was fearful and did not do what God wanted him to do, and did not show courage, and rather blamed others for his actions and made excuses. So no matter what the danger in our lives, we need to do what is right, we need to trust God and act out of courage and take the initiative to do what we know God wants to be done. Any, any questions or comments? I think we've, we've gone a little long.